Verse 18, John 5. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I testify about myself, my testimony, sorry, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he's testified to the truth, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do you think I will accuse you before the Father? Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say?
We thank God for this, his word to us. Well, let's turn to John 5 once again. Before us today, we have astonishing verses and crucial teaching that's so central to the gospel that if we do not understand these verses, we probably won't be able to understand the gospel. Because Jesus makes amazing statements about himself, then he backs it all up with evidence, and then he warns us or whoever about the reasons why we struggle to believe and receive. So we have a lot to cover, as I hinted, and we need to get to the text. Let's, first of all, think of um, four, uh, four reasons or four claims uh, that Jesus makes uh, in these verses, verses 16 to 29. And he, he, the claims that he makes are, are based on four fours that are in the text. D.A. Carson points this out. Verse 19, although in the NIV it's because, is the first one, but the same, because or for. Verse 20, four. Verse 21, four. Verse 26, four. So we're going to look at these four fours and, uh, and see where that takes us. Basically, what Jesus is doing here is that he's claiming that he, not that he's a, another God, but that he is the real and only God. And there's a major difference between those two statements. He's not another God. He is the real and only God, and that he's equal to God. And the first thing that he says is that their work in creation and recreation is the same. Verse 19, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing because, listen to this, or for, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The works of the Father and the works of the Son are exactly the same. And that's why we start our service off with Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17. For by him all things, this is Jesus, by, by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's why when we read in Genesis 1, it's not let me make man in our image, but let us make man in our image, in our likeness. You see, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He's equal with God in His work of creation and recreation and salvation. They are together. They're equal. Secondly, their love for each other, which we benefit from verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, for your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. The relationship between the Father and the Son existed pre-creation. Their love always has been and always will be. And actually, when we read the Bible, most often, it's the love for each other is primarily taught the Father's love to the Son, the Son's love to the Father, but we benefit from the love of God displayed in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, of course. So the Father loves the Son and shows it, and when we see it, we enjoy the benefit of the Father-Son loving relationship. And our salvation security 
is based on the eternal love of the Father and the Son. So we're getting this picture of equality with God. But there's a, a third four, and that's in verse 21 to 24, particularly verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. You see there, the, the Father raising to life and the Son giving life. So much we could say about this, but here's the point, I think. You see, Jesus is the dividing line of all humanity. The key question I suppose I could put to you today, and the key question that will be asked of you on the last day is this. What did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? I mean, verse 23, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, if you happen to say, oh, you, I believe in this vague notion of a God, or by the way, somebody we're witnessing to, and, and we often hear this, don't we? Okay, I believe in the vague notion of God, but I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm not so sure that he is God. Then do you know what they've got? They've got a false religion. That's not real, true Christianity, because we honor both or we honor none, or neither. That's what verse 23 basically says. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And see, in verse 24, look at the result of believing and receiving. Isn't this beautiful? I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Oh, beautiful perfect, eternal life is the gift that God gives to us in and through the Son. And notice, by the way, he has crossed over from death to life. It's a past tense verb. In other words, it's already happened. Sometimes I, I, we, we talk about um, eternal life as something that's going to begin when we die. No, it begins when we're saved from our sins and come to Christ. Eternal life has already begun for Christ's chosen people. So it's not about tomorrow. It's not about the end of life. It's about now. We are in possession of eternal life. So what are we seeing here? Jesus is equal with God in their work, in their love, in their life-giving, and lastly, in their giving of resurrection life. Verses 24 to 29, and the four here is in verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, we've passed over a few verses, but let me just quickly summarize them. Jesus is perfectly qualified to judge, verse 22. He's perfectly qualified to give eternal life, we've mentioned, verse 24. But here's the exciting bit about the future, verse 25. He's perfectly qualified to call the dead to resurrection. Now, this is a doctrine that very often we neglect. It's kind of the Cinderella doctrine of theology, is it not? Verse 25. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In a few months' time, when we get to John 11, we're going to come across a beautiful powerful story of the raising of Lazarus 
Now, Don Carson says that when Jesus spoke, he was very careful to say at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Because if he'd simply said, come out, everybody would have come out. <laughs> everybody would have come out. If it hadn't been restricted to Lazarus, then, well, it would have been a bit like the time when Jesus died on the cross and the graves around Jerusalem emptied for a period of time. Folks, one day you're going to die. Another day you're going to be buried. And still another day you're going to be raised to life. Jesus is going to come. I don't know what it's going to be like, but he's going to come. And I picture, he says, Alistair, come out. As I stood at my parents' grave back in March, having just lowered my mother's remains into the grave, I thought of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And I actually thought about the day when Jesus will come back and he'll say, Andy, come out. Lorna, come out. That's what he's going to do. Because you see, he's God. Verse 28 and 29, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, I really feel as if we have our we. I have not done justice to these verses, but if you can pick, pick up the big, the big claims and let them register in your mind and in your soul, they will, they will bring you great joy, no doubt. Jesus saying, I am equal with the Father in the glorious works of creation and recreation. I am equal with the Father in our love, which the redeemed on earth enjoy. I am equal with the Father, giving eternal life to my chosen people. I am equal with the Father, showing resurrection power on the last day. That's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus has just said. Now, what do you make of that? What do you make of that? These great claims. Are you open-mouthed amazed? That's my Savior. Or maybe... I can't believe that. I would like to believe it, but I can't believe it. It was like that back then. You know, some were amazed, and many were resentful, as we're going to see. But in his usual gracious way, Jesus defends his claims and provides evidence to back up those claims. The question is, do we trust him? Do we trust Jesus? Because we trust people in so many different ways, don't we? You know, think about those other drivers on the road. Think about the doctor in the surgery. Think about the chefs in the restaurant. Listen, we, we trust people in a, a thousand different ways every day. Fallible people. Fallible people. And Jesus saying, hey, as you trust their word and trust their deeds, would you trust me? Would you trust me? And that's the message in the sense we've got to try and get across in our witness, uh, in our 
uh, living out the gospel to people, crucial truth needs to be shared with people who need to hear it. So Jesus declared the truth, by the way, not to win arguments, but to win souls. Notice that in verse 34. I say we won't have time to look at absolutely every verse, but look at verse 34. Not that I have accepted human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. See, that's why Jesus kept on debating with these people. Not to win an argument, but to see souls won. And the pain that he felt within them is spelt out there in verse 40, is it not? Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You know, I'm not trying to have an argument with you today. And I hope you're not having an argument with those you witness to. That's not what we're doing. My prayer is that if you're unsaved this morning, then you will come to faith in Jesus Christ even today. My prayer also is that when you witness to those people in your workplace, maybe in your family, in your neighborhood, that you will explain the gospel in such a way that they will come to faith. We're not trying to win arguments. We're not trying to impress. We want to see Jesus received. And that's, of course, a miracle. Jesus defends his ministry, and he calls, as I say, upon witnesses uh, in verses 30 to 40. Uh, what you've got to do is picture, uh, like a, this is a court of law. You can picture Jesus in the dock, and all these Jewish leaders, they're accusing him of, okay, you say these things, you make these claims. Give us the evidence. Give us the evidence. Well, Jesus does. And, and, and first of all, he, um, oh, I can't click that when there's a, there's a number up there, I can't read that. It is there. Eight, is it? Eight, there it is. Uh, okay. Um, so what does Jesus do? He, he defends his claims and he, um, I you click that on because it's not receiving it. There you are. He, 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 he gives witnesses. He calls four you know, to the court. The first one is his father. Now, in verse 31, you'll notice that he, he's not saying that he's unreliable in his testimony. No, he's not. But he's simply saying that according to um, the Old Testament rules about witnesses, a single or personal testimony was not enough. It wasn't recognized. So he's saying, I know you people won't accept my word, but I'm going to call somebody who you should respect. My father, verse 32, there's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. And we, we talked to the children about that. Do you remember in the day of, of his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, the father and the son in perfect unity, in perfect sync, in beautiful love. You see, Jesus in the dock the people are judging him, and the father witnesses for him. That's witness number one. Now, that should have been enough, but no, they won't accept that even. And so there's a second witness, and that's John the Baptist in verses 33 to 35. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. In verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Now, if you remember, if you were here back in John, or way back in kind of January, February time, um, the Jews sent a delegation to John in chapter one, and John the Baptist said three things about Jesus that he was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, that he was the Spirit anointer, and that thirdly, he was the Son of the Father. 
And you know what? John the Baptist was flavor of the, the month for a while. He was a popular light for a short time. But eventually, as religion tends to do, you snuff out truth. You snuff out the light of the truth and his witness, even though he witnessed very clearly to who Jesus was. So witness number one, the Father. Witness number two, John the Baptist. Witness number three is his miracles. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Now, he's probably thinking about, on one hand, the turning the water into wine. Do you remember that? John chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, the first half of chapter 5, what we looked at last week. But he's thinking probably a bit more. But listen, I do think I have time, and this is very important. If you're taking notes, please take these five, at least five ideas. J.C. Ryle, the godly commentator, said this. There are five distinctive features about the miraculous signs of Jesus. The first one is this, the number of them, the sheer number of them. We're not talking about a few wee things. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of miracles were produced by Jesus. Secondly, the greatness of the miracles. These were mighty interferences in the law of nature and in the law of science. Amazing. Number three, the public nature of the miracles. Not done in a corner, but done in open day and before thousands of witnesses. Number four, it was the character of the miracles, always to show the love, the mercy, and the compassion of God. And the fifth thing, J.C. Ryle says, is that the direct appeal to man's senses. In other words, they were visual, testable, open to examination. Those five great things about the signs that Jesus performed. But surely Jesus was also thinking about his final work, his death and his resurrection. Jesus will finish the work the Father gave him to do. That's what he's saying there in verse 36. And he's saying to the Jewish leaders, look at my work. Look what I'm going to do for you and for the world. Look, look, look. That's evidence of who I am. And then the fourth witness he brings into this courtroom is the witness of the Scriptures, verses 37 uh, to, to 40. They had the Word of God in their hands, these Jews, you know. And they should have seen God in Jesus. They should have seen that um, Jesus was the new and better Adam. They should have seen that he was the new and better Exodus from slavery. They should have seen that he was the new and better promised land. They should have seen that he was the new and better priest to forgive. The new and better prophet to teach. The new and better king to rule and to reign. Because, you see, Jesus fills the whole Old Testament. And guess what? Even though the Jews had the Bible in front of them, they did not see him. He's there in the Old Testament in picture and in promise. Think about the water in the Exodus. Think about the manna. Think about the light. Think about the feast. Think about the lambs. All pointing to who Jesus is. But when Jesus appeared in flesh and blood... The Old Testament was absolutely no good to them. No good to them. Why? Look at verse 38. Nor does his word dwell in you. Nor does his word dwell in you. Listen, they had the word. 
They studied the word, they memorized the word, but the word of God was not in their hearts. Really, the Bible was simply just another book to them, not the revelation of God. And if the word was in their hearts, if the word had been in their hearts, they would have recognized Jesus. And you know, for us, that's the same temptation. You know what? Every single one of you probably has loads and loads of Bibles in your home. But I wonder, it might even be in your hand right in front of you right now, but is it in your heart? Because the witness of the Bible is always to the, the wonder and majesty of Jesus. And if you've missed that, then you've missed the whole purpose of the book. Verses 39 to 40 is so scary. Look at verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. They were so near to the truth and yet so far away from salvation. They missed the whole point of the Bible. It can happen today and you know what? As a pastor, as a minister, as your friend, my big fear is that people I know and love and have taught over the years is that you have come so close, but you're not yet saved. And the people I know and love and want to seek to testify to, that they can come so close, but remain unsaved. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I am God, says Jesus, and I present four witnesses to your court. You think I'm on trial here? Well, I'm going to present four witnesses, and I'm asking you to believe the witness of the, my father, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of my miracles, the witness of the scriptures. Will you believe? Sadly, most didn't. And let's see why or how as we try and wrap up this. Because in this next section, the last section of the, the chapter, the accused becomes the accuser. Uh, Jesus kind of turns the tables on them. They, they, didn't have, um, um, they didn't lack evidence because there was more than enough evidence. Uh, they didn't lack knowledge because they had the Word of God, but, but what was the problem? So, so what keeps people like you and me and the people that we're trying to witness to, what keeps, what keeps us all from the truth? Well, I suppose it could be described as one word, one sin, uh, that of pride. Pride is the root sin of all kinds of sins, where we say we know best, uh, we, we, we trust our own reasoning, our own wisdom, or we, we trust other people's reasoning or, or anything else because we want to rule our own lives, our own way. And, and that results, of course, in a number of things. Uh, loving the praise of people and not Jesus, uh, verses 41 and 42. I, I do not accept praise from men, but I know, that, I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in, in your hearts. They loved the praise and the love of people, but not the praise and the love of Jesus. So, so that led these Jews to rely on rule-keeping, uh, trusting in their own works, in their own intellect. And that's what got them through, and that's what they thought would bring them to salvation. 
They desire the praise of people, the attention of people, but not the love of God. And then the second thing is trusting in man-made messiahs, verse 43. Isn't this fantastic? I come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Jesus came in the name of, of God, and they would not have him or receive him, but any other answer, any other leader, any other philosophy, any other theory, they would receive warmly. And that's still the case today, isn't it? The truth of Jesus is rejected, but any other person with any other theory is given tremendous respect. Do you know what some people believe? Everything or anything but the truth. Do you want the truth? Do the people that you witness to want the truth? Can they handle the truth? How often do you hear these words? Oh, this is what I think. Or this is how I have worked it out. Or this is my experience or my understanding. That's another reason why people reject Jesus. Desiring human approval is, a, is, is another one. Um, verse 44, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Here's, here's something about human nature. We crave, don't we? We crave the smile and love and approval of people, but not God. As one commentator said, if we cared less about being liked by people and being glorified by people, we would be caught up in the glory of Jesus. Isn't that right? How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Listen, we all have that itch within us for human approval. Ah, I want the approval of that important person. I, I want the approval of that big personality, either in my family or my workplace or my community or even in my church. Oh, I want, I want their approval. I, I want the approval of that mover and that shaker. And Jesus says, would you value me and my smile upon your life more than anything else? And then lastly, Trusting in man-centered religion, verses 44, 45 to 47. But do, do not think that I will accuse you. But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? You see that they put their hope, their confidence. Um, in their own ability to be good, and it was basically all wrapped up in their law-keeping, perverted by their additions that we've thought about many, many times. But here's the point. They missed the whole point of it all because Moses, as we said earlier, was pointing to Jesus. Moses was writing about Jesus, and they didn't see it. And people who do not believe refuse to see it. 
give you a few more examples before we finish. I mean, the promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Do you, do you know that promise? Who was that about? Tell me. Jesus. He didn't see it. Or the command of, of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. What was that a picture of? Jesus going to the cross as the perfect Lamb of God. Or the Passover. <laughs> what was the Passover about? Jesus. Or, or what about the tabernacle or the water or the manna? We could just go on and on and on, and they missed every single picture. And that's why Jesus said, Moses was writing about me, and Moses will judge you. Because you rejected the truth that you'd been given. And I know. For the people that we're witnessing to and seeking to evangelize, it's a very hard, 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 hard thing to stop hoping in ourselves, to stop hoping in other people, stop hoping in the religion that we've been contaminated by. It's very hard. I admit that. False confidence is the byproduct of human reasoning, and it's the curse of man-centered religion. False confidence. And that's a huge obstacle to coming to faith in Jesus. If you're struggling to come to faith in Jesus, or if the people you're witnessing to are struggling to come to faith in Jesus, it's because of one of these four reasons, no doubt. Or maybe a mixture of them all. And that's why we need humility. Humility is at the center of the gospel. Jesus went to the cross because he was humble enough to do that. We're going to be thinking about that tonight, actually, in, as we look at the Catechism number 27. Why don't you come back, as Jeff uh, encouraged you to do so, uh, and let's study the Word together and be encouraged, because it was humility that took Jesus to the cross. And it's humility that brings us to our knees before the Savior. And in humanity, there's horrible pride. Or there's... Um, Beautiful humility. The battle fights. And the Jews, by and large, maintained their horrible pride. Crucial teaching, yeah, we started. <laughs> this has been the whistle stop tour. Crucial teaching for our own understanding of God and his gospel, yes. Crucial teaching for those we witness to and seek to reach. Four claims to deity. Do we believe them? Four witnesses to back up those claims. And four reasons why some here, maybe, or some we witness to, will not believe. And you know, because of these four things, by the way, let me say this again. Because of these four reasons, the people in this building today who do not believe in a saving way, you may remain like that forever. The people we witness to who will, may never believe because of these four reasons. That's why we need a miracle. We need the irresistible call of God by His Spirit. That's why we need to pray for each other and for the people we witness to to enable us to believe and receive because that's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are thankful for your word. 
Um, it's been a warm day to study, but we pray that you, by your Spirit, will write your word on our hearts. And as we go from this place, we will sing and believe Jesus, only Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.